to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 143. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, once again, we do have a Q&A episode lined up for you. So Jack, I'm going to hit you up with this first question. It says, do you count mushrooms toward your vegetable goal? Yes, I do. We only answer and ask the very important questions on this podcast. Mm. I just realized as well that this is the first episode of our fourth year of podcasting. (gasps) You're absolutely right. Yeah, we actually did a post on our TBD Instagram this past weekend celebrating three years of TBD. So this is officially now our 226th episode we've released on the podcast channel. Wow. Man, it's been a blast. You and me. It's been great having you along for the ride, Jack. Thank you for being a a guest host for so many years. Oh my God. (laughs) Anyway, let's get back to this question about mushrooms. Do they count toward your vegetable goal? Yes, but I can understand why the question asker inquired because they're technically a fungi. Mm -hmm. A fungi vegetables. Do, let's say you take some recreational shrooms, do they count towards your vegetable target? depends like how much micronutrients are actually left over in them after they're dehydrated eh Mm, it's a good point (laughs) so i don't even know enough to comment like i i thought they would just pick them and eat them do they have to be dehydrated i don't know again these are the big questions of the universe yeah (laughs) but i guess technically we don't have fruit vegetable and fungi targets to hit within the australian dietary guidelines yet You never know what might happen in the future, eh? Uh, What Australian dietitians might get up to with their shrooms. (laughs) But I would count them toward a vegetable goal. (laughs) I would as well. And I guess what is the difference between fruit and vegetables? Because I know, obviously, a lot of people say, hey, like, is tomato a vegetable? Mm. Is what is the difference? Because, like, could your apples be a vegetable? Mm. Because I think a lot of people interpret fruits and vegetables subjectively based on how sweet Mm. they are. But technically, a fruit is any seed-bearing plant. And then those seeds grow from the ovaries of that plant. And then a vegetable is any other part of the plant. So you could have something like the root or the stems or the leaves. Mm. But basically, any plant with seeds in it is technically a fruit. So sweet, bitter, sour, you name it. Technically, it's a fruit. Mm. So what are some ones you can think of that are, I get miscategorized? <laughs> it's something that I was actually thinking of before is that technically cucumbers are fruits because mm. cucumbers are full of seeds. I guess chilies are fruits then as well. Yeah, a chili would be a fruit. A, like a green bean would be a fruit. And yeah, mm. avocados Tomato. are fruits. Yeah, tomatoes are fruits. Boy, but then when you think about, yeah, vegetables are kind of everything else. And I guess people just categorize the fungi well are there any fruits people say they're fruits but they're actually veg i can't really think of any Mm. well no then it would be the opposite wouldn't it no because if someone calls a fruit a fruit and it is it actually a vegetable (gasps) i can't think of any what about those genetically engineered grapes or seedless watermelon seedless grapes seedless oranges are Mm. they now technically (laughs) vegetables because they don't have seeds in them anymore hmm I think that's more of a question for a philosopher, yeah, not a dietitian. You're absolutely right. But then I guess this is kind of where the lines get hazy because the Australian Dietary Guidelines recommend that you have at least 300 grams of fruit and 400 grams of vegetables every single day. 
but ultimately if these things are a bit crossover so let's say that i ate 100 grams of cucumber but technically that's actually a fruit does that then count toward my fruit goal mm. hmm. well another interesting fact for you is that well two interesting facts is one all of these recommendations like your six serves of veg or two serves of fruit are based on weekly averages so just because you don't hit it one day let's say christmas day you don't eat any vegetables you can make up for it in the next couple of days. Mm-hmm. And the other point as well is that the only reason we have fruit targets is because people don't eat enough vegetables. And I've always been a little bit confused about that because that's what we were taught at university. And I mean, a little bit of research on the NRVs or Australian Dietary Guidelines, and you'll find that out yourself. But why? Like, is it because sugar in fruit or... Is it because fruit isn't quite as nutritious as vegetables? I'm not sure. Mm, Perhaps vegetables are more nutrient-dense compared to calorie-dense compared to fruits. Mm. So perhaps that's why they're trying to encourage people to have a higher vegetable intake compared to fruit intake, potentially to accommodate for calorie balance. But if you actually look at the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, their little pie chart there, in the vegetable component, Jack, technically they've got fruits in there. They've got like tomatoes. They've got some zucchinis. They've got some capsicum. Dude, I had a look. They even have shrooms. <laughs> <laughs> so fungi, yep, they're right in there and they do count toward your vegetable intake. It's good to know. Yeah, but this kind of debunks like I've, I have had questions from some of my clients before because, you know, just giving these guidelines like, 400 grams of veg, 300 grams of fruit per day, try to hit that on average. If someone's like, I really love fruit and I find that I don't quite hit my vegetable target, is that okay? That's probably okay. Mm. They're all super nutritious plants. Yeah. Yeah. I would still say that you still want to get a variety of fruits and vegetables in there, of course, because fruits, they have generally a lot more color compared to some vegetables the main thing about vegetables is they are a lot of them like green leafy vegetables they're green because they have chlorophyll in them and that's super nutritious for us as well so fruits and vegetables a variety of them they're all going to be unique in the different micronutrients that they provide so the more the merrier but i wouldn't get too hung up on these super strict numbers of 300 grams 400 grams because yeah those were taken from like a population cohort many many years ago and it was based on weekly averages so they took all of the fruits and vegetables people would eat across a seven day span and then they divided it by seven to get some averages Hmm. yeah so there you go but anyway to count or not to count i would count your shrooms i would as well (laughs) okay jack so this next question it's talking about junk volume so it says How can I progressively overload in the gym without going into junk volume territory? So I think the easiest way to do this is find a weekly number of sets that you can recover well from while training hard and accurately and that you get a good pump from in the gym. You notice good progression with so on and so forth. And I think neither of us utilize an approach regularly, I should say, where we increase number of sets throughout a training block mm. or mesocycle. So I think ultimately it's it's rare that you should be noticing junk volume throughout your training block. And if you are, I would say that's more of a sign to me that you might need to implement a deload. Mm-hmm. Implement a deload or just make sure that you are following 
a well-structured training protocol from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Like what would like let's say that you felt as though you were starting to perform just junk volume in some of your workouts. What would that feel like to you? How would you identify those sort of signs? So probably for me it would be I'm resting, let's say I'm doing four sets for something and I perform well on the first two to three sets. I take just as much rest between that third and fourth set and I still underperform quite significantly in that fourth set. Mm. So that would be a big indication to me. Also, if my head's just not in it and you you get to that stage in the gym where I don't always agree that you need a massive pump and really amazing connection for everything, but that's just gone completely out the window Mm. by the time you reach like a ladder exercise. It still has merit. Yeah, mm, it does. But yeah, it's not it's not the be all and end all. Like, mm. for example, in a set of RDLs for me, I don't have a massive splitting hamstring pump. Mm, um, I don't know. It depends <laughs> on which angle I'm looking at. But <laughs> yeah, but uh, same with deadlifts as well. Like, I don't think you would always. Yeah, what I'm trying to say is sensation isn't always everything and mm. chasing sensation in a particular exercise isn't always the most mm. important factor. And I think the more experience you come with training, it's it's something that you can feel. It's really a sensation. Like you get to a point where you're like, man, I'm just doing this set for the sake of it. Or I'm just doing this exercise for the sake of it. And you're just not getting much out of it. So that's where I would argue that you are approaching junk volume territory because it's training volume that isn't necessarily serving you. It isn't necessarily enhancing your physique in any way. It isn't necessarily causing an extra disruptive stimulus in any way. So yeah, it's it's not necessarily worth your time and it's not necessarily worth your energy. Mm. And I think this is, it is not an easy, it's not always an easy thing to determine. Mm. Like, and that's why we get this question a lot. Like, what is junk volume? How to know if you're doing junk volume? It's not like you suddenly, a light bulb flicks on or off and you're like, okay, that was definitely junk volume. Mm. It's not It's not as easy as that. Yeah, no way. But I would say that like it, it usually happens toward the end of a workout rather than at the early parts of a workout. Or if it's happening at the early parts of a workout, like the example you gave, it's happening in like that last set of mm. your exercise if you're performing over three sets yeah. for that movement. So for example, let's say that you're training legs and sure, you want to be developing your quads, but let's say that on this leg day, you are incorporating a leg press, a Bulgarian split squat, you're doing leg extensions, and then you finish off with walking lunges, and then you do a one minute wall sit. I'd say that if you'd caused enough stimulus and disruption to your quads, you're probably pretty freaking spent at the end of your leg extensions. I would say that you probably do not need to do walking lunges and wall sits on top of that. And I think that's a feeling that you will begin to recognize as time goes on. Because at the end of your third quad movement, you're like, man, I'm just exhausted. I have an enormous pump in my quads. I am pretty freaking spent. And you just feel like you're not necessarily able to give your all to those following exercises. Sure, you're disciplined. Sure, you get it done because it's written on your program but you're probably using sub-maximal weight. You're just exhausted. You're just slogging through it. And then if you can honestly ask yourself the question like, hey, if I actually was able to allocate this exercise to earlier in my session, would my performance be significantly improved? I think that's another thing too. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think also if you're doing stuff like 
supersetting a back squat as your first exercise with a leg extension or like an RDL with a leg curl, Mm. then that's also junk volume as well. Mm. Like, although it might be at the start of your workout, you're impairing your recovery. You're not really taking enough rest time and you're therefore inhibiting how much you could be lifting Mm -hmm. and doing stuff like that really serves no purpose for hypertrophy specific training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that just begs the question of how hard are you really training? What level of intensity can you actually apply to those big compounds? And Mm. like we've spoken about many times, that is a skill that you just have to learn over time, but it's about not becoming confused with what feels exhausting compares to what feels really, really challenging and demanding. Mm. So for example, you know, someone might feel like they get a better workout because they feel more exhausted and they're breaking even more of a sweat when they are supersetting some squats with some leg extensions because their heart rate's constantly elevated. They're training for a longer duration during that specific exercise, but they would probably get more bang for their buck if they could really push themselves solely in those working sets for their squats and then leave leg extension for later in the workout and actually rest between their sets of squats. Mm, Totally. Yeah, that's a big thing. But at the same time, like junk volume doesn't necessarily mean that you need to take out a certain movement. For example, like you might even feel like you are absolutely spent in a certain muscle group at the end of a workout and you're not getting in the best quality work. So for example, this could be a case where you might want to consider putting some of those exercises first on your program, particularly if they are isolation movements. So This has actually worked really well for me for these past couple of months. Something I've implemented with my program is that previously I would do exercises like hip abductions, cable face pulls at the very end of a workout. And by that time, man, my glutes and my delts, they're just, they're just fried. And I just do not get much out of those exercises. So I was begging the question, man, like, is there any merit in doing these? Cause it kind of feels like a bit of junk. I'm just doing it for the sake of it. But if you want to get in really good quality work, you could consider putting some of those exercises first on your program if they aren't going to impede your performance on the following movements. So I don't see any reason why you couldn't start off a workout with some hip abductions and with some cable face pulls. Or if someone needs to bring up their delts, maybe start off your workout with some lateral raises. Like as long as it's not going to impede your performance and you get better quality work in there, you can kind of flip the script and it's no longer junk volume for you. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm glad you started doing that recently. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing it for a while now as well. Mm-hmm. The only time, like I do have some semi-mixed feedback on that. Like sometimes I'll do that accessory-based movement first. And I think because I'm very, very anaerobic-based, like mm-hmm. type 2 fiber-based is I'll do that first movement and I'll go very hard on it as I usually do. Even if it's something like a lateral raise and I'll do my next exercise, which might be a shoulder press And I will actually feel a bit emotionally fatigued. Mm. Like my CNS will be a bit fatigued, but not really physically, which I think does actually hinder myself a little bit on Mm. the subsequent exercises. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular informative content on both our Instagram and YouTube channel. So make sure to go over to those platforms and search The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. Mm, That's interesting. I I think I experienced a little bit of that too when I first started adjusting to this because I was very accustomed to going into a workout and starting off with my very first compound movement and just warming up for that specifically and then getting straight into it. But I guess 
once you start putting one or two isolation movements before that, you're not quite in that same headspace when you first make the transition. So you definitely have to, uh, it's, it's something to practice to kind of mm. like keep that mindset on hold for a moment. You're like, I'm just going to go do my laterals now, but then I'm going to come back and crush my RDLs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I need to take a leaf out of your book. <laughs> take some practice. Uh, all right. So, guys, this next one, it says, this is interesting, Jack. We've actually never had a question like this before. It says, is it easier to get very lean if you've been very lean in the past? Shred memory versus muscle memory debate. Yeah. So, obviously, we know that muscle memory is a thing. So, if you've lost some muscle, then it is easier to regain that muscle than building it in the first place. And I do think, I do agree that the shred memory is probably not a thing, but I do think it's easier to get lean if you've been lean before. Mm, yeah, I'm not sure if your adipose tissue has memory, <laughs> but I know that we have memories mm. from what it feels like to be shredded. Yeah, and I think anyone who has undergone multiple dieting phases, like comparing it their first one to their most recent one, I'm sure that pretty much everyone can agree that their most recent period of dieting has been more optimal or mm -hmm. easier than their first one. Uh, like obviously granted that some people might have external factors that might influence it. But mm -hmm. I mean, I can remember to my first ever like intentional scheduled diet. And it was, I think in 2013 or 2014 when I had no business dieting and I like first started tracking on my fitness pal and literally it was the first day I was starving and I gave up on my first day of dieting. Mm -hmm. Like I had some crumpets with peanut butter and honey and banana on top because I just wanted them. And That's the worst. I remember that too, having that first experience on my fitness pal. And it's very confronting because what you want to do initially is like, you're curious, right? Like, oh, how many calories have I eaten today? So you start plugging in what you ate that day and it starts adding up and up and up. And you're like, oh my God, I'm a 15 year old girl and I've eaten like almost 4,000 calories today or something. Cause I had this much cereal at breakfast and all this, you know, chili for dinner or something. <laughs> but like, yeah, it's very confronting if you do that initially and you're like, I don't want to do this. I don't like this. And then, yeah, you don't want to be on the app anymore. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And I, I can't even really remember why I was dieting in the first place. I think it was just me being me at that time. Mm. And I, cause in my earlier stages of lifting, I always had that struggle with fueling my body with enough energy and actually progressively gaining weight. And it wasn't until 2016 that I, well, that was the year I met you that I actually started productively putting on weight mm. and I and I was reliably above 80 kilos which is crazy to think mm -hmm. yeah and I think when it comes to having shred memory just every single time that you diet particularly as a bodybuilder I think most bodybuilders would argue that every single prep that they undergo unless you like you've done a copious amount of comp preps and there might be you know one rotten egg in there mm. sort of thing where things didn't necessarily go your way you usually get better and better and better because you set yourself a benchmark. You're like, cool, this is what I achieved at this point in time and this is how hard I pushed. But then you recognize that there's levels to this and you are capable of pushing to another level. Mm. 
Well, I think we're relating this a lot to bodybuilders, but even just normal dieting in general and, mm. and weight loss, like someone who has never attempted weight loss before, or they've never seen a coach or a dietitian or a nutritionist mm-hmm. compared to like when they do it, let's say they want to get lean every single summer, which I think is fairly normal. And I, I don't think that's necessarily wrong to attempt like weight loss, like once a year. Mm. Um, I think the more they do that, like let's say five years down the line, I think they're going to be much more experienced and refined at it. Yeah, just psychologically, you know what to expect. You know how to handle yourself. Like mm. you you understand what it's going to take to achieve your certain goal, but you're just even, ready to do it. Yeah, I mean, even knowing that like, okay, I know that in the first one to two weeks, I'm going to expect, experience some like fairly drastic weight loss from glycogen, water retention. And then after that, it will probably slow down a bit. I know that by the time I get to like 2,600 calories, I'm going to have to probably dig quite deep to, to 2,200 calories in order to get to the to my goal body weight or mm-hmm. something like that. So whereas your first weight loss, and it's the same with us working with clients, it's always a shot in the dark, like or an educated shot in the dark, maybe mm. with like a, a bright flashlight. Uh, <laughs> But for example, someone might come to us and we, they're a fairly active person and they don't have a history of being overweight and yet you still need to diet them pretty damn hard mm. in order to lose weight. Yeah. Even though you, you wouldn't really predict that from their, from their history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes you've just got to do what you've got to do in order to achieve a certain goal. And that's certainly something that I've learned as a coach to detach myself from certain numbers and certain expectations and ultimately don't deny what the data is telling you and what is right in front of you sort of thing because you can certainly use numbers and guidelines to guide you but when you are working one-on-one with a client and you know that everything's being hit to a t but ultimately certain things just aren't occurring you know like they're eating this certain amount of energy for sure and they're expending this certain amount of energy but their scale weight isn't budging and their goal is to keep dropping scale weight sometimes you do have to get aggressive and sometimes you do have to push and that's Mm. something that you just need to learn as a coach and everyone is different so use numbers to guide you but you can't just assume that oh I coached someone who walked a similar amount of steps to you. They were a similar body weight. They also trained five times per week and they were able to eat this amount of food and lose this amount of weight per week. You should be the same. No, 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 no. Everyone is so freaking different, man. It goes the exact same for training. Like you might look at someone's physique and be like, wow, she's got a really big butt. I bet she can hip thrust a lot. You never know. She might have weak glutes just because she has a big butt doesn't mean that she's super strong. Same Mm. would go for guys. Yeah. (laughs) And I guess that's why a lot of cookie cutter programs, if it's a weight loss program, they just chuck everyone on Mm. a thousand calories because you have to be quite special not to lose weight on Mm. a thousand calories. Yeah. Ultimately, you got to do what you got to do. But Mm. I, I really think with this, it's it's not so much physiological. Who knows? Maybe research will come yeah. out in the future. I wouldn't be surprised because I think the other point that people might not know is that our muscle cells only undergo hypertrophy. Mm. They don't undergo hyperplasia, which is duplication or, or multiplication of muscle cells. And I think the only animal that does is cats, mm. if I'm correct. They I might be able to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is funny. But... Uh, Fat cells can undergo hyperplasia. So when you gain body fat, your fat cells increase Mm -hmm. in number and size and you can't lose them, which 
is interesting as well. Mm-hmm. So like, who knows, there might be some research in the future or there might even be something already that we might not be familiar with. Yeah, well, and but that could potentially even pose the argument that could future preps be potentially more difficult if someone doesn't have a very successful reverse out of their first comp prep. So for example, let's say that someone does, does get remarkably shredded during their first comp prep, but unfortunately they just gained a little bit too much body fat in the post comp period their fat cells undergo that hyperplasia they have more fat cells than they initially had then they want to undergo another comp prep they have more fat cells filled with more fat and now you need to get even leaner than you did prior so potentially it could be even more difficult yeah when you put it like that boy that's a sticky situation mm. Mm. that's why the the post comp period is is very important yeah but who knows like in future research might come out showing that as you undergo dieting phases you are less susceptible to higher amounts of metabolic adaptation it could be the reverse or i'm personally under the impression that it just it's a skill it comes with practice it comes with knowing what to expect over time and it's just knowing what your limits are and that you want to push to a new limit and new boundaries. And I think it's really, really psychological and just having a solid plan in place too. Mm. Planning is everything. Yeah. Like I think that for all of our future comp preps to come, you and I are just going to keep getting leaner and leaner and leaner, but just looking leaner as well, of course, because like you just have more muscle mass. So even Mm. if you have more muscle mass on, you end up at the same body fat that you were prior, you'll look like a leaner individual. Yep definitely keen (laughs) okay well should we answer one more sounds great okay so this one says what are some tips on maintaining an appetite during a bulk over many months well we've been in bulks for many months Mm -hmm. still got our appetites yep hey guys just a reminder that we offer coaching services which you can find on our website by searching the bodybuilding dietitians on google or via the show notes below We coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. So there's a bunch of different factors. If a client came to me and they were saying, hey, Jack, I'm struggling with my appetite, there would be a few different things that I would try and tick off to kind of narrow down why the appetite is diminished. So often our appetite, it's very multifaceted. So it's not always a reliable indication that body fat is too high, but ultimately body fat is one of the indicators. So if your body fat increases and gets to an unproductive level, your hunger hormones will essentially tell you to eat less because your body fat is higher. Um, So your ghrelin will decrease, your leptin will increase, and that'll prevent your appetite from being stimulated, essentially. And you might also just be in too greater of a surplus, so your rate of weight gain might be too high, your daily energy intake might be too high if you're experiencing poor appetite, Also, your daily stress levels, whether it's training-related stress or emotional-related stress related to work, family, friends, your love life, whatever it might be, uh, that will impair your appetite as well. Uh, Other factors like, let's say your energy demands are super high, so you have an active job or you're just very metabolically adaptive and you're trying to get, let's say you're on 4,000 calories, you're getting all those calories from whole foods, that's a great way to reduce your appetite. Uh, because you're satiating yourself considerably and that also leads us into the kind of like nutrition for performance versus nutrition for health which is slightly different and other thing like to cap off with is you might just not be 
genetically gifted in terms of your appetite Mm. some people just have shit appetites yeah well some people i think growing up their whole lives they've just been accustomed to either eating at a regular times during the day and also eating very small quantities Mm. of food so if you even slightly try to increase that quantity they condition themselves into small portion sizes yeah yeah and that can certainly be tough so yeah definitely having a good appetite is definitely an advantage if you want to pursue physique sport Yes, for most people. <laughs> well, you got to grow, man, and you got to eat. Yeah. Well, I think we could, we definitely both conditioned ourselves into larger portion sizes. Mm-hmm. Like we look at a normal portion now. Even when I'm in a gaining phase and I I'm happily I'll happily eat a small portion, I will still look at it and be like, "Hey, is this enough food for me?" and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, I think to help stimulate your appetite ultimately man you got to keep making food delicious Mm, that's one point like diversity and variety is really important for your appetite and palatability as Mm. as well like if you want to have an appetite you need to make food taste and look more enticing so you genuinely want to eat it and you remember to eat it and you're disciplined enough with eating it Mm. you could just get an iv drip (laughs) or a nasogastric tube nah man why don't you just make a nice stack of pancakes (laughs) But yeah, so what are some ways, Jack, that like you've found that helps to make your food more palatable now that you're on a really decent amount of food? Mm. So I'll usually have a foundation of foods that I know will hit my five food groups and my nutrient targets and stuff like that. And then on top of that, I'll have some flavor enhancements to make it a bit tastier. Mm. So let's say for my evening meal, that's where I get all my vegetables in. So usually... Uh, 500 grams of vegetables or more and I'll have that with some kangaroo and some white rice basically just mix it all up and I mean in a dieting phase that's amazing but at the moment it's it's a lot of food it's a lot of food volume and sometimes it's difficult to eat if it's by itself so I've been adding some hummus to that like on top as a topping I've also been adding some onion chutney which is really delicious (laughs) And I'll add like a whole egg on top of there as well. So just little things like that. So to if I just had some vegetables with meat and rice, like mm. I would that would be struggle street to get yeah. to get that down. Especially considering that would basically just be protein and carbohydrates. I think if you want to make things more palatable, you especially need to mix carbohydrates with a fat source and a bit of sodium as well. That is the magic trio to make food absolutely delicious and. If you haven't noticed by now, a lot of food manufacturers and a lot of fast food chains caught on to that quite a while ago. And uh, it definitely can't work in your favor if you're trying to control your appetite, right? And perhaps be in an energy deficit. You don't want foods to be so highly delicious that all you want to do is keep eating more and more and more. But if you can combine carbohydrates with fat and a bit of salt, boy, like that goes down pretty easy. It's not not too unpleasant. Yeah, I mean, it's that combo of well, your dad actually made us this little thing, for lack of a better word, <laughs> where it's just like frozen pureed chili, garlic, onion, and tiny bit of oil or something. Mm. Yeah, and I use, I chuck that in with like when I saute the veggies and that just takes it from a 9 out of 10 to a 10 out of 10. Yeah, it's absolutely delicious. Mm. Yeah, so definitely making things palatable by putting spreads and toppings on your food and Yes. just started with the maple syrup as well. Yeah, they can be energy dense, man. Because that's where you just need to break through that wall of B12 
being orthorexic and thinking that every single food that you eat has to be super duper wholesome and maximize its nutrient density. Once you tick those boxes for the day, but you still have calories to fill in, it's okay to take advantage of these more highly palatable, more energy dense, slightly less nutritious options. Like Biscoff spread. Yeah, <laughs> We were talking about that this morning. I'm like, Jack, will you ever try Biscoff? Because quite a few of my clients really like it on their oats. And you're like, nah, not yet. <laughs> yeah, it's never been something that I've been enticed to try. I think it's a little bit too sweet for me. Yeah. Coming from the guy who just had maple syrup. But... Yeah, you're literally drizzling maple syrup on top of your like cocoa cakes <laughs> with yogurt. <laughs> yeah, it looks good. But yeah, I'd say just yeah, spice things up and make them as palatable as possible. And also... Make sure that you're not incorporating a lot of dieting habits into your new dietary pattern if you're trying to gain weight. Like so eating just, with small spoons. Uh, not even that, <laughs> but what I'm talking about is like unnecessarily bulking things up with vegetables. Like, for example, if you were trying to gain weight, get the zucchinis the hell out of your oat bowl and feed yourself some more oats, okay? Or if you're making a smoothie, Add some more mango in there. Stop chucking in... Spinach. Not spinach, but like... Zucchini. Frozen cauliflower or something like that. You know, like bulking these things up with just like very low energy, very high fibrous vegetables. So there, there's just a lot of dieting habits there. Or, mm. you know, people are, who are still eating diet jello mm. in the off season, but they're complaining that they don't have an appetite. I'm like, dude, eat some real jello. <laughs> And then sometimes, like I, people say this much less often than when people are in a diet, but sometimes you just need to suck it up and eat the food. <laughs> just, dude, there's a lot harder things to do on this planet <laughs> than eat a few extra bites of food. I'm telling you that, okay? Mm. If, that's, if that's all we can complain about, we are blessed. Yeah. It's interesting though how people, I guess obviously because of obesity, but like you hear it all the time when people are dieting, they're like, just suck it up. You got to... You got to just do it in order to get lean. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about bodybuilding here because it's a bit extreme, but people rarely say it in the off season. Like if you're mm -hmm. not hungry, usually though, if you aren't hungry, it is a sign that something is going on Yeah. Uh, because in, in order for your hunger to diminish to that extent, and I've definitely been there before, probably when body fat was a little bit too high or stress was too high. Mm. You haven't been there quite as much as me though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. I've just always had a great appetite, but yes. <laughs> hell not complaining, but I think also just taking advantage of the times of the day that you are hungry and 100%. then purposely yeah. eating more at those times. So at least it's more enjoyable, more pleasant rather than just getting to the end of the day when then maybe your appetite's stimulated because maybe you haven't eaten much all day, but then you've got so much food to eat that you're just going to stuff yourself, you know, mm. and just feel really uncomfortable. So that's, that's also setting a routine. Yeah. Setting routine and having specific structured meal times during the day to actually eat and sticking to that. Again, I feel like it's not, it's not that big of an ask, you know, like these are the simple things. Like these are the, these are the, e these are the easy things. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, that's it for this episode. Mm -hmm. I think we wrapped up on a good one <laughs> and as per usual, we'll finish with something that we learned this week. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I can go first. All right. What'd you Wait. learn? So I was fiddling around with my camera today mm -hmm. on my phone and I've got the new iPhone where you can zoom out to like 0.5. Yeah. And if you have a canine companion, <laughs> you can hold their, put, let them put their snout in your the palm of your hand and then take a picture of their <laughs> nose and you'll get a great photo. Trust me. <laughs> 
Oh man, they just look they. But there are literally dogs that look like that. Yeah. Yeah, those ones with the really long noses. I'm mm. not sure what they're called. Aren't they uh, rough collies? Have the really long noses, but. They're not really noses, are they? They're just jaws. I'm talking about that snouts. one, and it's like white and black, a bit spotty, and like its forehead just goes straight into its long snout. Not a greyhound. No, it's not a greyhound. I don't. I don't. You guys know what I'm talking about. You've seen one of these at the park. You know what I mean. And you question. You're like, why? <laughs> and how do you breathe? <laughs> I like border collies. Mm. Um, but yeah, that photo you took of Boston's pretty funky. Yeah. Only we could no. It's podcasts obviously aren't visual, but it's a funny photo. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, maybe you'll have to upload it to TBD to advertise mm. this podcast. Sure, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, what did you learn this week? Well, it's interesting that you said something about the camera because I actually learned something about cameras too, and specifically related to clients. So I've been working with this girl for over a year now as an online client, and. Of course, every two weeks she sends me through her progress photos and she's sent me through this entire time like IFBB front and back poses and videos as well. And with the IFBB, you can pose on either side. You can either face the left or you can face the right. There's there's no like strict kind of like ICN how you have the quarter turns. But now we've started to practice quarter turns and she sent me through a video of her doing quarter turns, but she was turning to the left. But anyone who does ICN, you know that you always turn to the right. So I was like, hey, just letting you know, even though in IFBB, you turn to the left, in ICN, you're going to have to turn to the right. So I just want you to start practicing that now. And she's like, I am turning to the right. Mm. And I'm like, the camera was mirrored, man. And I'm so glad that we pointed this out now, like well before she's going to be entering into a prep or anything like that. Because this whole time, I thought that she did her IFBB pose on the other side. Right. And anyone who's a posing coach or a physique coach or any just, you know, that that does look very different and it matters mm. which side that you're posing. So the on. normal iPhone camera doesn't mirror it. Right. So she was taking it on the her, selfie on the selfie right. version so she could see herself posing. Mm. Yeah. And then it flipped it around when she would send it to me. So that's just a little note to coaches. Just double check how your clients are taking photos and videos for their check-ins if they're mm. if they're online purely. Well, I think my photo hack was cooler than yours. Yeah, yours is pretty cool. You know, <laughs> Boston Snout is pretty cool, but obviously this is a heads up so that you don't get, you know, to show day and then you meet your client in person right at their show and then you're like, "Wait a second. This the whole last year you've been posing facing the right. Now you're facing the left." And yeah. Mm. <laughs> don't want any surprises. Is it right to pose on the right? Uh, I think it's moderately correct to pose on the right. Okay. (laughs) Whatever tickles your fancy. But anyway, guys, thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you next week.